Well, I'm delighted to see all of you. It must be some kind of record that this many people are interested in learning about renunciation <laughs> in America. <laughs> maybe, maybe not all of you knew. <laughs> anyway, this is the um, this is the beginning of a, a three-week series that will happen just on the the regular meditation time on Thursday um, to talk about, I think I called it renunciation in lay life, something like that. So the, um, the quality of renunciation, which is very fundamental in Buddhism, but not really um, understood or often positively regarded on, in general, but there are, I have found, I've just noticed over the years, there are actually people who resonate with this term and would like to know more about it or don't think it sounds that bad, but um, so, and I'm one of those people, and so I've discovered that if you actually point it out and, and say that, people will, people will come, which is very interesting. So the way I want to frame these sessions is to look at three different aspects of this word renunciation or letting go. We're going to explore a lot, you know, what it really means. But three different aspects, which are, you know, they're not named this way in the suttas, but we can uh, come to understand them as uh, outer renunciation, which is something like simplicity. And then uh, inner renunciation, which has to do with freeing ourselves from our emotions and our mental patterns uh, that trap us, the habitual patterns that we're all acting under. And then the special renunciation of identity uh, would be maybe a, a deep reform. So that'll roughly be the focus of the three weeks, but they're not, you'll see that they're not totally separate, of course. <coughs> So, in the Buddhist teachings, uh, renunciation, which could also be called letting go, is associated with all kinds of good things, like contentment, ease, simplicity, and even relational harmony. And it supports the development of the path toward liberation. In the end, um, one of the descriptions of people who have been completely awakened as it says that they attain liberation through non-clinging. Well, non-clinging is not attaching or letting go. So this is the path, actually. But in a, you know, in a simply stated way, the practice is to let go of activities or patterns of speech or even views, ways of thinking, that bring complication or agitation to the mind. If we could let go of all the ways that we're doing that, our mind would be at ease. So the Pali word that's most often translated as renunciation, you know, where am I getting this word? Uh, that Pali word is nekama. And it's often used in the suttas in a way that uh, contrasts it with kama, which means sense, usually means sense pleasure or sense desire. Um, and so because it's a negation, the implication is kind of that it's turning away from sense desire. Now that's not a literal etymology because uh, nekama and kama are not, uh, they're not exactly, they don't come from the same linguistic root, they just sound similar. So it's a sort of a pun. Uh, 
<laughs> the Buddha used a lot of puns, by the way, but we don't get it in English as much. But nikama and kama is a, a pun, even though they're not etymologically related. So, turning away from sense desire, or more broadly, turning away from the kind of standard worldly pursuits that were offered in life, you know, the pursuit of career, relationship, a house with the white picket fence and the dog, you know, those kinds of things that were offered as little packages that will make us happy, but we often find don't. And so we turn away from that and we pursue a life of practice. You know, it doesn't mean that we turn away and go live in the forest. That's what monastics do. I'm going to talk about what lay people do. But we can still live in the world and not buy into all those things. So in our tradition, we would call the desire for freedom from these worldly pursuits, also called samsara, as uh, the word samvega. And the commentaries, interestingly, say that samvega is the proximate cause for nikama. So wanting to be free of all this worldly stuff is the cause of renunciation. How do you decide to renounce? Because you realize you want to, you're not interested in these things that are offered to us that will make us happy, supposedly. So this way of wording, I think, is interesting. You know, the desire for freedom from samsara is the cause for renunciation. So it's, uh, um, we're talking about desire. Wait a minute, isn't desire the cause of suffering? Isn't that the second noble truth? Uh, we're going to go over this, because that's not actually what the second noble truth says exactly. So what we have here is a wholesome desire. Sambhaga is a wholesome desire that is rooted in wisdom. So we are exchanging worldly desire for dharmic desire, if you will. So you can still have your desires. They're just going to be refocused. Um, it's not an accident that this word nekama, for renunciation, is the first of the three right intentions. In the second step of the Eightfold Path, right intention, there are three of them. The first one is nekama. An intention is a desire, is it not, in some form? Intending to do something, wanting to do something, moving towards something. These are desires. So, we're going to talk a lot about desire. So, speaking of that, uh, what do the suttas say? We'll talk through a number of suttas, but here's, here's kind of a nice overview. There's a layman named Tapusa talking to the Buddha, and he says quite boldly, We lay people enjoy sensual pleasures, delight in sensual pleasures, take delight in sensual pleasures, and rejoice in sensual pleasures. Renunciation seems like a precipice to us. This is his statement to the Buddha. And so um, the Buddha gives a teaching, but the, in the essence of it is he says that the minds of monastics are said to launch out upon renunciation and become placid, settled, and liberated in it. So there's sort of a contrast here between the lay people who delight in sensual pleasures like all lay people delight in sensual pleasures and all monastics delight in renunciation. So I'm going to question whether or not there's really this one-to-one correspondence. Um, I don't see that. I see a lot of lay people. Look at all of us. I see a lot of lay people who are somewhat interested in renunciation. 
Um, so I think renunciation is for lay people too. There are other teachings, uh, like for example, this one from the Dhammapada. Even though well adorned, that means us, we're well adorned. <laughs> Even though well adorned, if one lives at peace, calm, controlled, assured, and pure, then one is a Brahmin, a renunciate, a monastic. Hmm, that's interesting. So the Buddha says that um, it's really more about how you are and not whether or not you're wearing the robe or wearing lay clothes and adornments. Um, so we see that renunciation is not really about asceticism. Uh, it's not about uh, giving up the way you look, the way uh, you live in the world, but you do have to take on these qualities that are named. So if one is, lives at peace, calm, controlled, assured, and pure, technically it says chaste, but um, I'm going to substitute pure. So the Buddha um, also says this kind of thing in, his, in the very first sermon that he gave, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. There he says, he talks about the middle way, and he says that it's the middle way bet- between what? You know, what does that mean? It's the middle way between indulging in sense pleasures and between self-mortification. So those are the two extremes that he first defined the Eightfold Path, the middle way, as being between. Um, So we don't want to devote ourselves to sense pleasure, but we also don't want to devote ourselves to um, self-affliction, which, you know, in our case can be, uh, oops, not just material kinds of things like they did at the time of the Buddha. They had, you know, people who were naked ascetics and lived in the forest and lived, you know, really harsh lives. He wasn't really supporting that. Um, but in our in our society, we don't do that so much. But we do have uh, mental self-affliction of self-abuse or, um, you know, being down on ourselves a lot. And he says that's not the way either. So we're exploring what renunciation means in our lay lives here in the West. Um, I think it's very likely that different people will have different experiences and different understandings of what renunciation is, and also different experiences as we're working with the topic over the next few weeks. So um, I'll be curious um, to hear kind of how it's going for you in the next sessions. Um, we can sort of embark on this, I think, as a journey of exploration. You know, what is this? What does renunciation mean for me? What does it look like in my life? What would make sense in my circumstances? So tonight I wanted to focus on the aspect of renunciation that's about simplicity. Uh, It's particularly relevant in our busy lives, of course. Uh, So this is essentially valuing simplicity over complexity, being receptive to the ease that comes when there is less stimulation in our lives, and being willing to actively create this, that's the important part, by letting go of or refraining from certain types of stimulation. So um, so if you value something, we, we act toward that thing that we value. So one area we can look at, of course, is actual physical possessions, 
we can consider the question, what is really needed? I like to use the word sufficiency. So, you know, of course, many of us have maybe more than we need for our bare survival. But the question is really about this this complication issue. So, you know, it's fine if you have, you know, a house that's a little bigger than you need because your kids have left home or something like that. I don't think that's a big complication. But if you've got two homes and three cars and a boat and, you know, a rental property in the Sierras, that it's, it's all getting a little hard to manage, that's probably not very simple and adds stress, adds struggle in your life in some way. So I have found that it actually feels the least stressful for me when I have the right amount of stuff. I mean, it's possible to have not enough stuff, you know, and be you know, getting by, but then, you know, be, be uh, scrapping for the next, you know, getting through the month, essentially. That also creates stress. So um, we want to find that balance where we have just the right amount. Now, traditionally for monastics, there are four requisites, as it said, things that we need to live as humans food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. So consider, you know, is anything really beyond that needed? In my own reflection, I've actually concluded that for lay people in the modern West, there might be additional requisites. Um, Probably. I mean, for bare survival, these things are fine, but for participating in lay society, Probably we also need some form of transportation and some form of communication. And these things are actually routinely supplied to monastics also, even though they're not considered part of the four requisites. But most monastic, uh, like people who support monastics, there's usually a ride board for people to drive them places, right? And to pay for their plane tickets if they need to go somewhere. So that's that's understood. Almost every monastic has a cell phone and access to a computer. So these things, I think, are could be moved up into the requisites category in the modern life if we're going to stay connected and part of society. Another way of framing simplicity is in terms of body, speech, and mind. And this becomes interesting, right? The areas of activity that we undertake. How simple can we be in those areas? This is where there's a lot of things we can do. So there are some practices we could consider, like around the body, slowing down. Many of us rush around and do things quickly because we have to get them done, right? But that's not really a practice orientation. That's a worldly orientation, getting things done so I can have that checkbox, so that I can turn it into my boss, so I can meet the deadline. These are all worldly goals. You can still do all those things, get things done, meet your deadlines with a dharmic orientation, and that will help your path a lot more. So orienting the body toward moving mindfully, toward moving slowly, reducing busyness. You can do a lot of things without being busy. Or you can do a few things and be really busy at them. Yes, it's a mental attitude. 
So my, um, my teacher, when he sometimes feels like he has just so many things to do and things coming in, he says that sometimes he just sits down and meditates for 20 minutes, and then he has much more time. <laughs> it's true, right? <laughs> Try it. Try it sometime. In our speech, you know, is our speech simple? So some qualities of simple speech, I think, are straightforwardness and gentleness. So those two are main. They, they come up in the Metta Sutta also. But you know, straightforward and gentle in speech. When you deal with somebody who speaks straightforwardly and gently and slowly, <laughs> not really slowly, but not at that really rapid pace, isn't it just nicer to deal with them than people who don't speak that way? Yeah, so it's simple, it's more easeful. You may not like what they say, they may say very straightforwardly, I'm sorry, but I can't do that for you because... And so you're not going to get what you want. But that's better than someone giving you the runaround, someone kind of deflecting you, passive-aggressive. If you can't do it, just tell me you can't do it. Isn't that better? So, and then being that way with other people. Just being, and this of course requires knowing what's going on in your mind and being okay with the emotions that you have and with your role in the situation. There's work to be done in order to be simple. That's why it's part of practice. But it's so worth it to be able to, to be in relationships like that. It really helps the peace of the world. And then mind. What are we doing in our mind? So practices around simplicity of mind include refraining from long stories about why things are occurring. (laughs) How much of your day is spent on these, and how many of them are really accurate? We can spin these long stories about ourselves or about other people, and so often they're either not completely accurate or irrelevant. Who cares why? (laughs) Right? Is that, is that needed? Is it needed? And also, you'll see if you like this one or not, I think a simplicity of mind involves reducing the number of demands and the number of complaints that we make in a day. Mm-hmm. What if you could do a whole day with no demands and no complaints? Wouldn't that be simpler? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is, um, this, this is uh, why these are practices. You know, letting go of our habitual ways of being dissatisfied and taking on the world. I want to read just the beginning part of the Metta Sutta, um, which has a lot to say. It connects uh, simplicity, renunciation, and ethical behavior, which is very, very beautifully. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Simplicity. And this is is about ethical conduct. It goes on to talk about how we wouldn't do things that the wise would reprove. So this is telling us what an ethical person does, someone skilled in goodness. And you see that it's related very much to renunciation. 
humble and not conceited, giving up our egoic, egoic way of being in the world, straightforward and gentle in speech, giving up our complicated manipulations of the social world. So much of that is a lot of suffering. Unburdened with duties, contented, frugal, giving up our complicated needs and and plots to get things the way we want them and to gather more of stuff. It doesn't fit into this picture. Engaging in an uproar of activities such that we're busy and stressed all the time is likely to lead to unwholesome behavior and then to a mental state that doesn't conduce to walking the path. So these are all related. There are various supports for practicing renunciation in the form of simplicity. You know, how are we actually going to do this? What, what are some things that could help us achieve this if it sounds like an appealing way to live? Number one, you can probably guess, mindfulness. Mindfulness is really good for not only keeping us present in the moment, but helping us to know where we're getting complicated. If we're not mindful, we don't know that we're just spinning off into something or being really agitated or, or making it hard for other people with our demands. If we're not mindful, we may not realize that. So that's the biggest support, I think. But there are also ones like um, tuning into the ease that comes from simplicity. So if you do manage to achieve a, a simple hour of, of a day, um, notice that. It actually feels better. And so when we tune into the ease of that, then the mind gets it and says, oh, okay, this, this I like this. <laughs> and then and then tries to find other ways to do that again. Notes around the house are very nice. They can be simple. I know someone who put up the note, relax, in several places around the house. That works very nicely. Um, You know that uh, restaurant, Emily's, right? It says, relax, you have plenty of time on 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 the way, and it's over on Mission Street great thing to see going into a restaurant. You can also enlist the help of Dharma friends in doing a simplicity practice. You can ask your friends to tell you when you're getting too complicated or when you're uh, moving too fast. It's also um, possible to dedicate a certain time period every day to being simple. so you decide, you know, the time right after supper, for example, or the time right, you know, during lunchtime. I'm going to take an easeful walk every day after I've finished my lunch, something like that, or just sitting and having tea. And you just decide, okay, um, you know, for these next 15 minutes or half an hour or however long you have, nothing complicated. Um, I do know... Um, Tandasaro Bhikkhu, who's a monk, uh, when he was very young, a young monk uh, living in Thailand, he was taking some examinations. I guess he was going through the sort of Buddhist studies curriculum that they offer there. And he had all these things he had to memorize. And, you know, and it was hard for him because he was coming from a different culture. So he spent a lot of time thinking and studying and trying to keep things in his mind. And he said he used to take breaks where he had five minutes where he didn't allow himself to think at all. 
<laughs> you would just say, all right, that's it, no mental activity. I mean, of course, there's probably some, but um, he found it was so helpful just to have even five minutes of simplicity in his mind. It probably helped him with what he was doing, actually. And then here's a big one, turning off the devices. Mm-hmm. Turning off the devices. So for a set amount of time each day, for example, I don't know, from 5 to 8 p.m. or after 7 p.m., you know, I check once after dinner and then that's it, (laughs) something like that, or even a whole day each week. No devices on Saturday or no devices on Sunday afternoon until Monday morning, something like that. Uh, My friend calls this an electronic fast. (laughs) <laughs> which is, it actually makes a big difference. It's amazing. Um, you think, oh, it's no big deal. I just look at it for, you know, one minute, and I check, and there's two new emails. And, then, and even if you really actually do that, that one minute actually makes a difference, looking at the screen, compared to not, not narrowing your world like that for a little, some period of time. And then you can devise other things on your own. There's many, many ways to practice simplicity and letting go in these very basic physical and mental areas of daily life. I don't know, does anyone have other ideas? I named some, but what else have you done to simplify your life? Decrease social commitments. Decrease social commitments, yeah. I did mention that at the beginning, is that we, if we value simplicity, um, I didn't mention that specific one, but we do actually have to act on that. So you can't say, I would like my life to be much more easeful and, you know, with more time and peace, but I'm not going to stop my job, kids, social relationships, volunteering, political activities, or online time. Like, well, how's that going to happen? So there, there are priorities, and you might need to do one less thing than you're doing what is really needed. I know we want to do lots and lots of things, and we think we should do lots and lots of things, but wanting and shoulding are not the same as needing, and not the same as what's really working for me, in terms of bringing ease to the mind. It's your mind, <laughs> and in the end, you have some control over how your mind is. Yes, you can, and sitting down and meditating, great. Don't ever st- don't stop that. <laughs> That's not the thing to cut out. Um, but the uh, <laughs> but the other areas, you know, it's like can I can I do everything I do and add a half an hour of meditation every day so I can be more useful? It doesn't work. <laughs> It doesn't work. You have to let go of something. This is a path of letting go. It's not a path of acquiring or adding more stuff or getting more efficient so you can still do everything and not be as as stressed. You'll be happy when you've let go of a few things. Okay. So, renunciation and desire. Okay, I promised I would talk about desire. So turning away from sense desire in some way, or worldly pursuits, you know, various kinds. Um, This arises from the wisdom that doing so much is not actually worthwhile in terms of mental ease and peace, which is the basis for the whole path. Wholesome behavior arises because we're 
at ease and peaceful enough that we can be mindful and act wholesomely. You can, yeah. And then from that arises the ability to settle the mind in meditation, the ability to gain some focus and tranquility, and from that the ability to see how the mind works, which is wisdom, which is the leads to insight, the aim of the path, to see where the suffering is arising, to see where the mind decides to cling and crave. So craving and clinging are the second noble truth, the cause or the condition for the origination of suffering. Interesting. I think that's outside. Anyway, um, so it's craving and clinging, which are, you know, an unskillful form of desire, of grabbing on. So, but not wholesome. There are wholesome forms of desire. And it's useful to spend some time in practice um, deliberately unpacking the different layers of the mind's tendency to want. So we have in the mind an ability to move toward things. It's like the mind can move toward, it can move away. Now, in the mind of an arahant, there's kind of, you know, a fully awakened person, there's no leaning, you know, there's no leaning toward or away. But for the rest of us who have these tendencies, the question is how to use them skillfully in pursuit of the path. You know, how is it that we can use the tendency, the mind's tendency to want to go toward, to want to move in some direction in a skillful way? So consider um, different words, by the way, for this movement toward, to want, to move toward, to feel moved, and to feel called. Those are all different forms of wanting this, and they, they land differently, don't they? So, you know, wanting and craving and grasping is one thing, but to feel moved or to feel called is a very different thing. This is a definition that I found useful from Gil Fronstall. Renunciation is the capacity to let go of any desire which might cause suffering and hurt. Without being able to let go of a desire, there is no freedom. That's true, right? You're not free if you can't let go of a given desire. That's what, that's what makes it craving or clinging, is that it's a compulsion. I can't not have that. That's where the suffering is. But just having a desire uh, is not in and of itself harmful. But we have to have the capacity to let go of any desire that might cause suffering and hurt. So it highlights that letting go doesn't mean getting rid of, but it does mean no longer being pulled around by something, or controlled by it. And I'm going to come back to that quote a little bit um, as we unpack somewhat this, this, these different kinds of desire, these different kinds of moving toward things. So this word um, kama that I said sometimes contrasts with nekama, it variously means sense pleasure, sense desire, or attachment to sense desire. <laughs> and it's um, usually presented as a, in the suttas as a key factor that, that brings about suffering. Usually that's the emphasis that the Buddha makes. So he offers some, the Buddha offers some very graphic images in the suttas for 
sense pleasure. Um, I won't go through all of them in detail, but one of them is a meatless bone that a dog is trying to gnaw on, and it doesn't get any satisfaction. You know, it's kind of fun to gnaw on the bone for a while, but then it's like, there's nothing here. Or a bird with a scrap of meat getting attacked by other birds because it has something. A person who goes against the wind with a grass torch. Bad idea, right? <laughs> Burned. These are, none of these are good images, by the way. A person being dragged toward a charcoal pit. <laughs> a dream world. And so a world of kind of, yeah, an unreal, a made-up dream world. Um, borrowed goods, so... Um, as if the things that we want or the things that we acquire are somehow foreign to us or just borrowed. And then a, a fruit tree being cut down while somebody's up in the tree picking the fruit. <laughs> so these are all images that are used for when we get caught up in sense desire, right? Not very um, promising, promising images. Um, so... The monastic life, of course, is a scene as a way of escaping all the difficulties that are caused by pursuing sense desire because most of their rules uh, prevent them from acting on desire. That's kind of the, the thrust of many of the monastic rules. Um, but for lay people, it's going to look different because we don't have as many restrictions. Now, on the one hand, you can say, oh, well, that means that you know we're just going to be rolling around in the world of sense desire all the time and that's why it's not as effective for us i don't see it that way i see it as we actually have to work a little harder because we have the ability to act on desires but we're going to do the practice and not do that it's not just forbidden to us by the fact that we've put on the robe we could do it but we choose not to so there's a certain strength there we have a different field of play that we're operating in, lay people versus monastics. And so we have to do things a little bit differently. So going back to that quote that I read from Gill, renunciation is the capacity to let go of any desire which might cause suffering and hurt. So we only have to let go of desires that are going to cause suffering and hurt. We don't have to let go of other desires. So this is interesting. So we need to be able to know what causes suffering and harm. We have to know what a harmful desire is compared to an unharmful desire. This requires some wisdom and some mindfulness. We might have to explore. There might be desires we have that we think are probably bad, but they're not actually. Or we might have desires that we think are fine, but they're not. <laughs> they're doing some harm. And it takes a lot of honesty to decide, you know, this thing that I really want actually is causing harm, and to decide not to do that. That's actually not trivial to do that. We have infinite capacity to justify what we want to do. Don't underestimate the mind's ability to do that. So, interesting. But how are we going to do this? How are we going to know if a desire is harmful? I recommend looking at these images. Check. To gain clues, check. Is, it, is there genuine satisfaction in what I'm doing? The meatless bone, right? Is there genuine satisfaction? Or do I just do this, but it's like gnawing on a bone, it's not actually really satisfying me? Um, 
Is there a feeling of getting burned, like the grass torch? You know, there are desires that we think are exciting to fulfill, but actually we're kind of getting burned by them when we think about it and really feel into it. It's not that pleasant. It's like going against the wind with a grass torch. Is there a dream-like, disconnected quality to certain desires that we're pursuing or having? There was a person on a retreat once who um, vowed that there's a fruit bowl out on the retreat counter, and but she didn't want to have a snack. She was not practicing not snacking. And she, um, she would go by the fruit bowl, and she would feel the desire, but she didn't take the fruit. And then one time she was slightly less mindful or somehow was somehow, and she walked by the fruit bowl, and she said, as if in a dream, my hand, her hand reached out, and suddenly she had a piece of fruit. This is this dream image that the Buddha gives. You know, there can be that feeling. It's like you wake up, and you're standing there with a plate of two pieces of toast. How did I get to the refrigerator and do that? You know, it's like, okay, this is a clue. Yeah? Um, so we can... You know, we can look at these, yeah, we can look at these images and consider some of the feelings that would go with these. They're pretty graphic. Are those present in our desires that we're pursuing? That's a clue. So, um, what is it that's, what is it that we're seeking here? You know, when you, I'm, I'm leaning towards saying that the end of desire is actually a significant moment, and this is where renunciation becomes a really vital practice, is to notice that when we get what we want, there are two things going on. We don't usually notice that. We think when we get what we want, the important thing is that we got it. I got it. (laughs) And then it feels good because we got it and our desire was satisfied. That is true, that's one of those things that's happening. But the other thing that's happening is that the desire ends, right? If you want something, I want this pen, now I have it, I have the pen, but I also don't desire it anymore, because I have it, right? It seems trivial, why is Kim focusing on this? Because, unbeknownst to the desiring mind, the end of the desire is the more pleasurable part than getting the pen. You may not believe me, but this is true, is that the end of the desire, also known as the cessation of craving, the third noble truth, (laughs) is really uh, what we're looking for. And so when we have desires, we fulfill them because it's, it's suffering to have that craving, it's tension, it's struggle, it's unease, and then we get it, and we feel the ease, and we think it's because we got it, but it's actually because the desire ended. Check this out for yourself. This is a really key point in practice. How do we do that? Well, we can do what's called writing out a desire, one of my favorite practices. So pick a desire, and when you feel in your mindful, and you notice a desire arising that you don't actually have to fulfill immediately, you know, you're working on the computer, and you think, oh, it would be nice to have a cup of tea. Ah. There's a desire. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so just don't do it. Um, don't get the cup of tea. You won't die without a cup of tea for the next amount of time. And don't just distract yourself and kind of say, okay, I'm not going to get it, and then go back to writing. I mean, you could. Um, that will work. Eventually, you won't want the tea anymore. <coughs> but what's interesting is to sit there 
and feel that desire for the cup of tea, but don't really feed it. Feel, don't, don't think about what kind of tea you would really like to get. Instead, focus on what the desire feels like. It's a kind of attention, attention in the body and a thought in the mind and a narrowing of the mind around tea, tea, tea. It would be so easy, I could boil the water, I don't know what, I'm supposed to feel the desire. And so you sit there, but desires actually don't last forever, especially if you're not feeding them, if you're just feeling what it feels like in the body. Believe it or not, that desire will eventually end. And then you have the very important experience of feeling the cessation of desire, first of all, and at a deeper level, your heart learns something. It learns that it can feel satisfied without the desire being fulfilled. That is really important to know, because if you don't know that, you will go through life only pursuing the end of your desires because that's what you think works. And it's not that you never get anything you want. Obviously, we have to do things throughout the day. Um, But uh, for a benign desire, like wanting a cup of tea, this is great education. And because there are things, of course, that we don't get. We don't always get everything we want, right? And throughout the day, we get a lot of things that we want. We do mostly manage to eat and get to the bathroom when we need to and put on our jacket when when we're cold and so forth. There's a lot of desires that get met every day. Uh, And that's good, I guess. I want want you all to have easeful lives. But we don't get everything that we want throughout the day. And in the bigger aspects of life, of course, there are things that we really don't get. You know, we didn't get the job, okay? You know, whatever it was. There's something, there's some big thing in everyone's life that they didn't get. And it was hard. And it was maybe really, really tragic and painful, actually. And... These little desires that we can let go of are like lifting the little weights so that it's easier for us to lift the bigger weights. And then there will come the time in our life when we really, we really don't get what we want. We really, or we really get what we don't want. You know, we get a disease, we get old, um, we lose friends. These things are really desires that are not fulfilled, if you will, or things that ended that we didn't want to end. It's just the flip side. And if we don't understand that the problem is the grasping, it will add extra pain. Not that there's never pain from these things. So the du- you know, the Buddha said that dukkha is getting what we don't want, not getting what we want, and uh, getting separated from what we like, uh, which covers a lot of territory, right? But um, it's only if we don't realize this fundamental you know, link between the craving and the end of craving and the suffering and the end of suffering, that those things are really, really difficult. That's part of human life also. You know, this, this path does not make us super capable so that we can actually then fulfill all of our desires and that's what awakening is. Sorry. <laughs> so it's really important to start working with this, this desiring mind and whether we're fulfilling the desires or whether we're noticing that what's happening is that the end of desire is what really feels useful to us. So, moving toward the beneficial, you know, moving towards, I've talked about desires that are difficult and desires that are kind of neutral and we can ride them out. There are desires that are actually wholesome. So a second implication of the quote Renunciation is the capacity to let go of any desire which might cause suffering and hurt, is that there might be desires that don't cause any suffering. 
those ones are good. We should have those ones. So these are desires like, you know, there are good things to want, like wanting to be free, wanting to meditate, wanting to help somebody. These are good desires. As Utejaniya says, even wisdom wants things. Even wisdom wants things. I mean, there's some part of you that's wise and wants you to live well. What does it want? What does wisdom want? It's interesting. So, desire is a real force in the human mind. Until we're fully awake, we have desires of various kinds. And sometimes they serve selfish purposes, but other times they're employed for good ends. You know, aspiration or intention or those kinds of things. So, I found that the ego talks in certain ways. So you start, you start hearing the language of desire in your heart and mind. So the ego says, I want to live, or I want to be here, or I want to be noticed. That's one. I want to not be here, or not be seen. I want something solid to hold on to. That's a big want of the ego. And I want to avoid physical, emotional, or mental pain, and have physical, emotional, or mental pleasure. Those are essentially the wants of the ego. Um, But the wisdom mind wants to awaken and to help others awaken and to help others be free from suffering. So if, if your desires along those lines It's a good one that can be pursued. And if it's more about the, I want to be seen, I want to get something, I want to avoid pain, uh, that's more on the less wholesome side. So, oh, we're nearly at the end. So, this is a sort of a touching into the first dimension of renunciation, which is about working with the the simplicity and the complication and the ease and the stress level of our of our lives. It includes a lot of our daily lives, um, but not just, you know, how can I get my life better? How can I get a better job? How can I get a better relationship? How can I, etc. But even just the moment to moment, how could I relate to this moment in a way that's not graspy? Um, how could I... Um, handle this desire that's arising without just immediately needing to fulfill it? How could I maybe let it go in some other way, since it's the end of the desire that I really want, not necessarily getting the thing? So, this requires kind of putting the filter on the mind of, what am I wanting, what am I not wanting, and how am I relating to that? And can it be simple? Can it be easeful? Can it be wise, you know, in the service of letting go somehow of that tendency to grab and lean in ways that might cause suffering and hurt. So this is going to lead us to seeing the patterns of our mind, which is what I'm going to talk about next week. So for now, are there any, any questions or comments? If you need to go, it's okay. I know we're at time. Go ahead. When I was 33, I quit smoking. After 15 years, I was a two-pack-a-day smoker. Mm. And I had quit a hundred times. But this time, I had some support and a program. 
that I went through and I made a commitment. And the hardest part, the easiest part of quitting was when I didn't have to think about when I could have my next cigarette. Right. Because I'd, I'd tapered off. So after, toward the end, it was like, okay, I can have three cigarettes. My next cigarette is going to be... When I quit, I went... Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to worry now about when I'm going to have my next cigarette. <laughs> Huge amount amazing. of mental space that occupies, right? Yeah. Yeah, desire takes takes mental space. That's a fantastic example, thank you. I'm sure we, many people can relate to something like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 It's amazing. Yeah, Kristen. Um, I'm really curious about how you said something about being busy without really being busy. Because um, a lot of, I experience a lot of suffering when, you know, like, because I'm a student and when things get busy um, and I get resistant to that. Yeah. Yeah, the resistance mm -hmm. is part of the stress. Mm -hmm. And I know you know that, but it's not necessarily easy to let go of that. Yeah, that phrase in the Metta Sutta, unburdened with duties, of course that could mean that we don't have very many duties, but it could also mean that we have a lot of duties, but we're not burdened by them. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the amount of duties is the issue, uh, but really how we're handling them. So we should have the number of duties that we can handle, and it might be a different number for you than for your roommate, or your mother, or your child, or your partner. It's not like a, a contest, you know, to have how many duties are the right number for you. And, you know, some people I think can actually do an amazing amount of stuff, but they don't seem to be stressed by it. And some people um, become very stressed with even a sort of a moderate level of stuff. And then it's working with, okay, you know, my mind gets stressed if I have more than this. Can I be willing to not do more than that? Because I care about my mental ease and maybe I'll not get that promotion at work or I'll accomplish less in my life. Okay, but it's going to be done easily and that's you know, changing our priorities from worldly accomplishment to inner, the inner life, the quality of our inner life. Yeah. And I, I think part of it too, at least as far as like things, doing things, is, um, and well, school or work or whatever is, at least in my experience, is just doing what you're doing. Because, and then actually, you can, you actually can get more done, not in a, like, this kind of way, but just, because you're, you're, you're fully doing whatever you're doing so you can pay attention. Yeah. And you're not creating a lot of anxiety, and um, the whole experience is so much more... Pleasant. Yeah. So there's and so the that even though I can have a mind that's very, like you just described, in the negative way, and I also can have a mind that isn't at all like that, and I have I'm doing the same number of things, but yeah, you know. Yeah, it's how. Yeah. So yes, being fully focused, that's the mindfulness. So just staying with what you're doing is uh, one way to to be more easeful in that. I see we're going a bit over, so maybe we'll end here, and if you have other comments, you can, you can come up. I'll stay for a bit. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.